Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture is from John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a book that's at least 2,000 years old, written by a bunch of men who didn't understand science to try to explain things that we better understand now, and to try and manipulate gullible, pre-modern people into a code of behavior that keeps the sheep in line. There's so many contradictions and errors, and it justifies things like slavery and upholds archaic views about sexuality and gender roles. It's a work of make-believe, like other fictional works of its time, and even if you take away things like miracles, the story of Jesus is just a copy and paste of a lot of other religions and folk traditions that came before him. These are some of the ways that I've heard the Bible described. And for a fair amount of my adolescence and early adult life, I was fairly convinced by these arguments. Even as a person of faith, I can absolutely understand how someone would be skeptical about the claims of Scripture, partly because I shared those objections myself. I know whence they come. I remember when my wife Amy and I were first engaged, and we were invited to participate in a premarital retreat at a local Methodist church. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I wanted to invest in the success of our marriage in whatever way I could. And so we went to this retreat, and it was very practical, but it also included a fair amount of scripture, lessons from the Bible. And as, at a, and as an agnostic, I didn't feel like it was too much. I knew where I was. But something occurred to me early on when we were invited to turn to a passage in our Bibles. I'm guessing it was 1 Corinthians 13 or something like that that had something to do about love. And it occurred to me fairly quickly that the Bible was neither in numerical nor alphabetical order, and I had no idea about where to turn. So I quickly handed it over to Amy, a little embarrassed, as I tried to get into it like a dictionary or something. I didn't know much about this book at all. That was the case for me, but I know that that's not true of everyone who has doubts about the usefulness and reliability of the Bible. 
I know there are several skeptics who have read through Scripture to find the problems and inconsistencies. And in fact, there are plenty of agnostics who know their Bible better than a lot of people who consider themselves to be Christian, specifically because they've studied it to find the most confounding parts of the book. And because so few people of faith have studied the scriptures in equal amounts, and so few of us have been encouraged to find ways to reconcile some of these challenges to the Bible's reliability beyond accepting it through blind faith, our willingness and ability to explain the value of scripture in these kinds of conversations can be limited. Now, we're going to talk through some of these challenges today, though not all of them, and I'm aware that even raising these questions can seem out of bounds for some people of faith. And here's why I feel confident in doing this, though. First, I do trust the Bible as reliable and valuable. I think Scripture can stand up to the questions, and so it doesn't trouble me to ask them. Second, part of my goal in this series is to help tear down some of the barriers that would keep somebody who's skeptical from digging deeper and drawing closer to God. If you're a skeptic, I'm not trying to sell you on faith, but if you have questions, I want to provide a safe venue for addressing them. And so we deal with some of these concerns. And I know one concern is how the Bible has been used over time. And so we're going to start off by looking at that. That's our first lesson this morning. The Bible can be abused but that doesn't make it abusive. The Bible can be abused, but that doesn't make it abusive. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 7, it says, The devil took Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Slaveholders used scripture from the Old Testament and New Testament to justify the ownership, involuntary servitude, and abuse of other human beings. Adolf Hitler used scripture to manipulate churches in Germany to embrace and enact violent anti-Semitism. Scripture can and has been used to encourage people to submit to unjust government authority. We've seen it used to justify capital punishment and retributive deaths. It's been used to subjugate women. It's been employed as a literal and metaphorical bludgeon against people who are LGBTQ. If scripture can be so hurtful and potentially abusive, why even try to redeem it? Even in scripture itself, we see some of the words intended for good being used in negative and potentially harmful ways. This passage that was just shared from Matthew, the story of Jesus' ministry told from the perspective of one of his followers, it talks about how Jesus went into the desert to be tempted by Satan. It's a bit of a showdown, and the passage lists three temptations that took place at this time, but this one stands out for us today. Why? Because the adversary uses scripture to tempt Jesus. Satan is quoting Psalm 91 here and using it in a way that sounds reasonable and makes sense to us. But Jesus recognizes this as a misuse of the passage. It's not a call to stand confident in God's protection, but to carelessly test God's protection. Jesus counters this misuse of one scripture by recognizing the larger stream of meaning beyond the one verse. It doesn't make that one passage untrue. It just holds it in tension with a wider theme of Scripture. And that's important guidance for us, too. Take, for example, the book of Job. Job suffers extraordinary loss. His friends come along and give him all sorts of advice, and the advice sounds good. In fact, you can find a lot of that same wisdom in the book of Proverbs. 
But still, Job refers to their advice in that context as proverbs of ashes, and God says these friends spoke falsely about who God is. So if we just want to pull quotes from Scripture from anywhere, and we find something from the book of Job, there's maybe a 75% chance that we're quoting something that God says speaks falsely about who he is. That doesn't make those passages unimportant, but they have to be read in their appropriate context to understand what God may hope to convey to us. And that means we have to look at the depth and breadth of Scripture. The parts of what we know as the Christian Bible are best understood as part of a whole. This library of stories, instructions, poetry, wisdom, and, the, and, and wisdom that the people of God have wrestled with, embraced, debated, and tried to live out throughout thousands of years. For Christ followers, this incredible volume has very important purpose, and it's most effective to use it for the reason that it's been given to us. And that takes us to our second lesson. The primary purpose of the Word of God is to point us to the Son of God. The primary purpose of the Word of God is to point us to the Son of God. John chapter 20, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life by the power of his name. And in 2 Timothy 3, But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. You might remember a while back when we did a sermon series called United. One of the main images we used in that series was kintsugi, which is this Japanese practice of mending broken pottery with precious metal like gold or silver. It doesn't camouflage the break like many of our attempts at repair do. It highlights the imperfections and makes the pottery not only more valuable, but it allows it to remain functional and useful. This relates a bit to the Greek concept of teleos in Scripture. We translate teleos as perfect, but it's not the way that we might think of perfect. Instead, it's like this blues guitar. This 1977 Electra X410 Jazz Strad. It is bumped and bruised. It's got scratches and engravings. It's clearly been in a pawn shop. It has been left dusty and refurbished. This instrument has seen some tough times. And yet, if I were to put this in the hands of somebody like Nick Lampman, he could really make this guitar crank out some incredible blues. It is still absolutely suitable for the purpose for which it was designed. And as a matter of fact, if we're playing blues, the fact that it's been to a pawn shop probably only helps that. A lot of churchgoers want to think of Scripture as perfect in our modern sense. Flawless, inerrant, and there is nothing wrong with that. In fact, a lot of Christians see that as a necessity of their faith. But for the sake of tearing down a barrier, I'm going to argue instead today that Scripture for us is teleos. That instead of focusing on its flawlessness, we can think of it as perfectly suited for the purpose it was given to us to fulfill. That purpose is to point us to Jesus Christ and help us to enter into and journey deeper into a life-transforming faith. What difference does that make? 
Well, instead of getting derailed, for instance, by the fact that there are two different genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke, we can maybe look at the line of surprising, sometimes scandalous people that God has called upon to bring about the birth of Jesus through time. To look at what sort of grace and sovereign design went into introducing salvation into the world through a vulnerable baby boy born in the middle of nowhere in the ancient Near East. And how those people who are part of God's story of salvation may be flawed and messed up, a bit like us. And how God still chooses to use them and us to introduce the good news of salvation into the world. Teleos. When we see the greater purpose, that God wants to restore to us new life and a forgiven relationship with Jesus, we spend less time arguing about the minutia of Scripture and more time living out the point of it. That through these words, people might come to experience faith in Jesus Christ, and we might deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. That shift doesn't make Scripture any less important, valuable, or true. It simply invites us to approach the Bible as an instrument designed by God to play the song of salvation that calls our spirits to dance in freedom and forgiveness given to us through Jesus Christ. And the more time we spend with Scripture, the more we find it to be reliable and true. And here's the part that often takes the greatest leap for skeptics, however. Lesson three. Inspiration means that God inspires the readers as much as God inspired the writers. Inspiration means God inspires the readers as much as God inspired the writers. Second Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. One of our points of reference for significant guiding documents would be something like the U.S. Constitution. That certainly comes up now and again these days. At its drafting, the Constitution was ratified with the intent that it's a living document, that there would be amendments and it would be interpreted by people who were entrusted with significant influence and authority over time. We can see the codified treatment of black and brown people in the early days in the U.S. as a place where the document needs to be changed and revised. With, same with the women's suffrage. The discussion about the usefulness of the Electoral College, I imagine, will continue for some time. We're accustomed to documents that have been crafted by imperfect humans, reflecting some of that imperfection, and over time, the ability of our generation of imperfect humans to amend, adjust, and interpret these documents in a differently imperfect way. Scripture is different, though. One of the reasons people of faith hold on to the Bible as such a dear and matchless book is because our traditions hold that Scripture was not just the work of human hands and imaginations. There is a spiritual aspect of how these words were first delivered. And here's how the church has explained it. Inspiration. In some translations, in this passage, you read it as God-breathed. Inspiration is a little bit like respiration here. It's the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, working through these human witnesses to record what needed to be recorded to accomplish the purpose that God has for these words. There was inspiration, Holy Spirit work, in the writing of these scriptures. And for Protestant Christians, that means 66 books, 39 of the Old Testament, 27 of the New Testament, and through the hands of roughly 40 contributing authors spanning over 1,500 years, writing in at least three primary languages. But here's part of the challenge. We don't have the originals. 
We don't have what are called autographs of these books. We have copies that have been reproduced by scribes and translated in different ways by scholars with sometimes dubious agendas over time. We don't have access to the first editions of these inspired writings. Doesn't that negate the inspiration argument? Well, only if that same Holy Spirit that inspired the writers were not accessible to us today. But we do have access to that same inspiration. And this is probably where I'm most likely to invite skeptics into something that requires faith. Before opening the Bible and reading, it's so important to pray. Praying takes some degree of faith because it presumes that there is something or someone who is listening. But this is a specific prayer. It can even be a skeptic's prayer. I know mine were when I first started engaging Scripture. God, if there is any truth to this, show me. If there is something I need to do about what I read, please make it clear. So, not only is it an invitation to something overtly spiritual, but it is an invitation into something dangerous. This prayer, if offered in earnest, could set your life on a very different course. Because when the purpose of the scriptures and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit meets with an openness of our hearts, minds, and spirits, incredible things can happen. We may discover our hearts are stirred to change. There might be this pang of guilt for something we've done or failed to do, and we face a choice about whether we're going to respond. We can journey deeper into that experience or try to shut it down. Maybe we'll find that we're being nudged to be a part of some kind of service or kindness that just seems a bit out of reach for us, but we're encouraged to take a step towards the challenge instead of stepping away from it. Maybe we'll find the words that used to earn our ridicule because they've been used to shame us. Those words instead start sounding like the words of a love that pursues us, a compassionate friend who desires only good for us and calls us to freedom from shame and lesser things. Maybe we'll find the words chisel away at the walls we've built around ourselves that shield us from this archaic and unbelievable story. A story of a God who broke into time and space to show us perfect love. A Savior who healed and who showed dignity and heroically offered himself as a sacrifice. About a rescuer who can show us our worth, wash our past clean, give us a brand new start, and help us to overcome all of our fears. A love that forgives and has the power to help us forgive so we're not consumed with bitterness and resentment. Maybe the Bible won't just be some old book written by people of the past, but dispatches from a God who knows us, loves us, and who knows the future that he has planned for us, a future filled with purpose and with hope. It may not happen with the flip of a switch, but if by chance there is a God, perhaps even a loving God who wants us to know the love awaiting for us, maybe it's worth a second look at the story of rescue and redemption. Maybe we'll find that it can do more than hold up to our scrutiny. Maybe we'll find it helps us to discover the key of life that is true, abundant, and eternal. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we pray that we would hear from you. God, you have not been silent. You have not been far off and distant. You have drawn near to us in Jesus, and you have given us this message this message that was inspired by your spirit and using human hands just like ours, you have 
conveyed this message of rescue and redemption, of love and salvation to us. You've done so with a purpose, not for the sake of our bickering and arguing, although, God, we can find all sorts of reasons to divide and nuance over these words, but for the sake of drawing people into a relationship of love with you. We ask that you would inspire our hearts, that we would respond to your grace with trust. And God, we ask that we would find your word to be faithful, that as we seek to live in response to your grace, when we live to this word, we find we're on solid ground, we're on good footing, and that the hope that we find in our life being restored by your grace through the instruction of your word is better than anything we could invent and imagine for ourselves. Lord, we offer all of this with hope, with trust, all in the powerful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.